the Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We continue to discuss The Lost Minute of Heaven by Jeffrey Shaw. We concluded chapter six last week on policemen versus soldiers, which basically is the Vietnamese and this British advisor's uh, view of how they should go about the counterinsurgency, namely by having a police force supported by military in the hamlets versus the some of the American uh, diplomats and so on wanted to have a more military uh, resolution that would call for heavy forces and major engagements. But maybe I turn it over to you happily. Okay, well, Chapter 7, uh, the abrogation of Nolting's rapprochement. Uh, so we're going to see the dwindling of Nolting's influence on the Kennedy administration and his eventual removal as the ambassador. And, uh, you know, this is 1962, uh, but even before that, fall of 1961, they were talking about removing DM. And I just like this quote on the bottom of 145 that gives Nolting's view of President Diem and also his view of what diplomacy is really about anyway. A very careful balance has to be struck between the ideal and the possible. Uh, assuming Diem's continuance, continuance at the helm and given his extraordinary blend of quality, fortitude, deep conviction, determination, those are the good qualities, and then lack of political instinct, lack of organizing and administrative ability, and many others. So Diem was not perfect, but he was a good man worthy of American support uh, so long as America stayed within the art of the possible. But as we're going to see, uh, the American advisors to Kennedy were, um, they had their ideas and they were impatient about making them happen. Do you think that's somehow embedded in American spirit, this Idea. I mean, everybody has ideals, but possibly that we, because of we think of the exceptional state of America and our desire to help others and so on, this is ideal to and to get things done and get things done as quickly as possible. Is that is that an American uh, characteristic? Hard to know unless you compare with other cultures. But. Well, I think it is, and you know, let's not forget that when Kennedy ran for president, this was after the American victory of World War II. So America was pretty confident that, uh, I mean, apart from the losses of Korea, we were pretty confident that we had uh, this military prowess, that we, that we used it for the right reasons, uh, defeating, uh, you know, Nazism in Europe and so on. And then the Kennedy campaign was all about the young new idealists coming into Washington and replacing the old guard. It was going to be Camelot. Camelot. They yes. actually called the Kennedy administration Camelot, which is kind of interesting because, as we know, Camelot does not end well. <laughs> so, you know, uh, anyway, but there was a lot of idealism about this new American um, uh, idealism that was going to mark Kennedy's administration. Yeah, if I could perhaps make a connection here, I mean, I mean jumping through jumping forward a few pages, but we can always come back again. Now, I like the fact that Nolting, you know, is a realist in the best sense of the word here, that we have to strike a balance between the ideal, in other words, what we want to emerge, and what's actually possible. So that's what you have to take pragmatic, practical steps towards the goal, right? The goal is just not going to happen 
uh, as if by magic. And then if you go on to page 152, this is an excellent piece of writing, and I think good wisdom, that new paragraph there. Mm-hmm. The American liberal idea that the pen was mightier than the sword, regardless of the facts on the ground with respect to the political and military prowess of the adversary, was based on an underlying false assumption that all the parties in the conflict want to stop the fighting more than they want to win the war. Mm-hmm. Because of their recent experience in Malaya, the British did not start from this assumption. They had found it necessary to steel themselves to accept the harsh reality that communist insurgents will keep fighting until they are destroyed, both politically and militarily. There was no point in negotiating with them before they were ready to surrender. And the British kept the pressure on them until they were. And then just below that, many of the Kennedy administration's best and brightest acted as though the communists in Southeast Asia wanted nothing more than civil rights and peaceful coexistence with the non-communists. So what we have here is idealism on the part of the uh, best and brightest of, uh, of the Kennedy administration uh, being at loggerheads with reality, um, you know, where you allow the ideal to be something which actually blinds you to the situation on the ground. Is there also perhaps in this a factor of uh, not just America, but the whole Western world, the ideal of progress that, that really began to uh, take hold after the scientific revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, that we can make things better. Uh, we try to do that, but uh, kind of a non-Augustinian approach where Augustine realized, you know, we're sinful and we're always going to be sinful. And we try to do the best we can, like you say, politics of, of the possible, but also we're not going to establish a utopia on this planet, whether we try and do it by Marxism with the perfect society and the proletariat, you know, is going to be in control, or liberal democracy. I mean, you try and use the best system you can come up with, but this kind of ideal of a change is going to really make everyone peaceful, just, and happy, and prosperous um, quickly. It's on the basis of a false anthropology, as you say, Father. You know, the idea of Rousseau, you know, of the noble savage, an 18th century idea, that basically we're not sinners. That we're all basically a tabula rasa. We're just nice and clean. And it's only bad bad society and bad civilizations that, that pollute us. And we're fixable, right? And if we're fixable, then all we, all we need is social engineering. We need the right ideals, the right ideology. And we can make everything perfect. And that, you know, whether that's Rousseau's uh, idealism leading to the French Revolution or Marxist idealism leading to, to communist revolutions around the world, it's based upon a false understanding of who we are. As you say, Augustine didn't make that mistake. Right. There's another realist on board here. I, what I like about, we mentioned last time that there's some repetition, but each time he goes around the bend, Shaw is introducing more characters. And it's the characters of these men that's so fascinating and what we're seeing is this Harriman group on one side uh, wanting quick uh, American uh, results. And then we've got the more pragmatist realists about what's really achievable on the other side. And this group is now growing farther and farther apart. And another member of the realist group is, is the uh, Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, on page 150. We're going back just a little bit. But I think this uh, quote from, um, I think it's from a biography yeah, Rusk's biographer, uh, where um, his faith, that there's it's that pullout quote in the middle there, his faith in 
the Anglo-Saxon tradition of law and liberty as a beacon for the entire human race, led Rusk to be paradoxically a convinced anti-colonialist. So here's a guy who recognizes what we've got going for ourselves, but doesn't think we can necessarily impose that all over the world. He accurately predicted the swift and inevitable dissolution of colonial empires after World War II and thought that the United States and Britain should assist this process. Nevertheless, he was enough of a realist to leaven these views with a dose of pragmatism. He did not believe in universal American intervention to set the world right, but in the limited use of American power based on what was possible in a given situation. So there's that word possible again. So you've got the people on one side of Kennedy's team saying, let's deal with what's possible. And then you've got the other people mm -hmm. on Kennedy's team who, by the way, are still promoting the image of Kennedy as the young idealist president who's going to make dramatic changes in the world. Kennedy's running for re-election at the time that his campaign is heating up at the time that Diem is assassinated, right? They're very much trying to keep this image of what kind of man he is so that he'll be reelected. And back to the remark you made, Joseph, about Rousseau and the tabula rasa, or the empty slate. Uh, uh, it, interestingly, America is one of the few countries that did begin with an almost empty slate. Of course, the Native Americans were here, but they were very dispersed, and we, we eliminated them. Uh, but in terms of creating a civil polity, uh, you know, a, a nation state, we kind of started from nothing, uh, and we could you know, sort of began with the idea, and then was realized. And so that may go into American psyche too that we think that we can we can start over and we can just build something the way we think is best for it to be built. Uh, yeah, that's actually probably a good. That's probably a very good observation, Father, because uh, you know every other uh, nation, uh, well, I don't know every other nation, but anyway, most other nations, certainly in the old world, have. Uh, um, a living tradition, for better or worse, right, that we're entangled with roots, branches, hmm. uh, whereas America basically started from scratch. So, well, how do we make this work? Let's, you know, let's come up with a constitution. Let's make this happen. And, you know, for better or worse, that's what's, that's what's happened. So um, <clears throat> we had no one on our borders to contend with. I mean, basically, right. the Atlantic and Pacific isolated us, and right. Canada was not popular. Mexico had not reached that far north to any great extent. Whereas you're trying to do something in Southeast Asia, you've got Cambodia over there, and you've got Thailand and China and Korea. They're all around you. You, you can't act. You can't act in a vacuum. We we got used to acting in a semi vacuum. We I mean, did. I, I, they, 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 this, these sort of geopolitical uh, reasons for for how why things happen. Same thing with uh, with with England with the UK. I mean. The closest point from Dover to Calais is only 24 miles, but it makes all the difference, right? Because there's actually a sea that separates the island of Britain from the mainland of Europe. And right. in Congress, there's been a stability. There's not been an out-and-out out, an out invasion of the UK with a sort of one in 1688, but 1066. You know, so obviously that, that leads to some form of stability. Yeah. Well, speaking of the geographical context on page 153 we see that laos is deteriorating now which which uh the, the the realists in the room all saw that coming that the laotian neutrality deal was not going to keep laos free of communist insurgents and so now what's going to happen is dm wants out of the deal and this is going to further uh strain his relationship with the Kennedy administration, particularly 
Avril Harriman, who brokered that deal. And uh, and and why? Because he can't um, DM can't protect Vietnam from people who do come over the border, do a bunch of bad stuff, and then flee over the border again. Gee, where have we seen this before? Well, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, another classic example. The uh, Taliban, all they had to do was cross back over into Pakistan, and we couldn't pursue them there. So uh, history does rhyme, as the saying goes. Um, yeah, you can't defeat an insurgency if the insurgents can hide for cover in the neighboring country, and you've got deals in place where you can't do anything about it. Right. Uh, you know, on the other hand, things are very, very difficult because you know what country has the absolute right to ride roughshod over the sovereignty of every other country? So you know, um, so it's a, it's a whole thing. To anyway, it's problematic. I do like the wording here on page one hundred fifty-three, the beginning of that new paragraph. Um, going along with Harriman on Laos, who was actually going along with President Kennedy, proved to be a disaster for South Vietnam. In very short order, DM's suspicions about the communist intentions in Laos were proved right, and Harriman's fingertip feelings, that remember we've discussed that in a previous discussion, mm -hmm. were proved wrong. So in other words, you know, the proof of the pudding, if you like, is in the eating, and Harriman's proved wrong here with disastrous consequences, but of course that doesn't mean doesn't lead him to uh, moving forward in any different manner whatsoever. He doesn't learn. Right. That's right. Um, oh, and then this, uh, these, um, the defections, you know, part of, part of what the uh, DM brothers wanted to do was not just obliterate the, the uh, Vietnamese communists, but win them over. And so they had these generous defection policies in place to try to win them over and, and reintegrate them into Vietnamese society. But the Laotian neutrality was working against that. Um, right. uh, so, and that comes up, I think in a later chapter as well, that, uh, that, that the American interference was working against uh, the Vietnamese reintegrating those who'd been won over by communism. Now we're starting to falter, but, you know, they're going to pick who they think is the winning side. Right. And the thing, the, thing, the thing is here, you say you've got elections coming up in the United States. So there's a detachment from from what's going on on the ground and the Harriman on the one side and Diem, who's actually Vietnamese, on the other. Look at the bottom of page 155, this summary by Shaw. To sum up, Laotian neutrality was causing far more problems in Southeast Asia than it was solving. At the end of the day, the Americans could go, always go home but the non-communist Vietnamese could not since they were fighting for their very homes. And then look at the footnote 42 there. This point was driven home when South Vietnam collapsed under the communist assault. After the communist victory in 1975, those who were not killed outright by the victors were subject to decades in concentration and re-education camps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just above that, uh, which was also included in that summary, but I want to point it out again, it's that paragraph in the middle. Uh, what is particularly important and readily discernible in news, that's his, Jim's brother, concerns is that deep fears and suspicions have been aroused within the Vietnamese by the developments in Laos. These fears were based not only on the current situation, but on the Americans allowing their allies in Eastern Europe to fall into the hands of the Soviets at the end of the Second World War. And that's a whole other question. But... Uh, there is this experience that people have had with our foreign aid that since we're helping people that are oceans away and ocean away, uh, we can walk away. And so 
they're not sure whether if we they accept our help, whether we're going to back out at some point. That's right. They seem very suspicious. And I can understand DM and South Vietnamese saying, well, we, we can't do this on our own. We need the help of allies, and America wants to help us, so let's try and work with them. But they also have to maintain their own integrity and their own understanding. And, and these are Vietnamese fighting against Vietnamese. Yep. So it's not like some foreign enemy that you are trying to destroy. That's right. Yep. So I'm I'm afraid that uh, the Laotian deal is causing uh, the the rift between uh, DM and uh, the Kennedy administration to widen, and Nolting is sort of caught in the middle there because he gets very uh, brisk um, messages from Harriman, basically telling him, "Look, make those people do what we say." Right. <laughs> well, I, think he says, I think Harriman says to him at some point, basically, tell DM you're acting under instruction. In other words, you you have no choice but to do as you're told. But I must admit that Nolting, for me, comes out, you know, uh, with flying colors in this. I, I, I really do respect the man for his integrity, his courage. You know, his, his, the fact he's not a, a, a careerist. He's not merely just trying to further his own uh, career by doing what his superiors expect him or ask him or tell him to do. He's a man of principle and a man yes. of courage. And I, and, and I actually I admire him greatly. And he's also, because you're an ambassador, you are under the authority of the State Department, you know, uh, at home. And he, he tries to be faithful to his obligation of obedience or subservience or at least following out orders. At the same time, he's sent there in order to be a liaison between these people and the American people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to be faithful to his task, he has to represent those people in, in, a, in a fair way. and I, the uh, you know when this is going on, and I was still not even a man yet, young, young a teenager, uh, I didn't realize the effect that the media. Had. I always thought it was in the papers that you can trust it. You know, it's, it's written down. It's not just speech that, that passed away. This is this is black on white. Uh, I see now, looking back, that what I've experienced now as an older man, a very old man, uh, that the opinions of these reporters uh, can be so skewed and yet so influential. Mm -hmm. It's really frightening. It's very influential because on page, um, uh, uh, back here, um, page 153, uh, in, in the middle of the top paragraph there, Kennedy was basing his perceptions of the situation in Vietnam more on reports from his friends and the news media than on official reports sent to him by his own embassy. Yeah, I think the danger there is as well, you know, that he's not just thinking about what the objective scenario is on the ground, but what the impact of it is to his election chances. Correct. So, you know, he's taking into account, well, we, what's the media saying about this? Not what's true, what's not true. But what Correct. What's the media saying? Right? Exactly. Even if it's not true, it's, it's, it's basically it's, 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 it's politicians being subservient to, to, to the mass media in order to get reelected. That's right. Yeah. Again, now we're recording this in 19, no, 2023, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but, you know, I try and sort things out, for example, with, with Russia and Ukraine. What, what is actually happening there? And I know you have to be very prudent and cautious no matter whom you read mm-hmm. because of these very things. And likewise with Israel and Palestine. Uh, you you want to be as fair as you can, as objective as you can, but... <sighs> It, it, it really requires tremendous discernment 
to sift through all the signals, out, all the noise to get to the signals. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, should we go to the next chapter? Yeah, that's in in fact, are we uh, are we to time yet, Thomas? On this, we've got a few minutes. Yep. A few minutes. Yep. Well, uh, so Nolting's rear guard. So we're still seeing this growing division between Nolting and the other realists and the Harriman group. We get a list here on the very first page of this chapter of who's in that group, the Harriman group. And what's really interesting is. On the top of 159, Shaw sums up how they're perceiving what this conflict in Vietnam is. And that is, in the judgment of these men, the insurgency in South Vietnam was a civil war caused principally by DM's ineptitude and corruption. Thus, they logically concluded that the solution to the conflict was the removal of President Diem. So, so, so the communists are not, not even the enemy anymore, right? The no, communists, no. Communists are not the problem. Right. The DM. communists are not the problem. DM became the problem. Yeah, yeah. And well, like right at the beginning of the of this chapter, you know, the, the, this sets the whole thing up as the Harriman faction worked to bring about a hundred and eighty degree turn in U.S. policy towards President DM. It was helped along by journalists whose negative reporting soured public opinion about America's involvement in South Vietnam. So this is the dynamic. You have Harriman who hates DM personally. Um, uh, who's seeking to cause a complete volt fast, you know, absolutely 180 degree turn, so that the Americans now take a completely different approach to what it took before. And why? Well, Harriman's own animus towards DM, coupled with the work of the liberal media, who are skewing the objective data uh, in order to pursue an agenda, uh, and how that impacts public opinion, who believe the propaganda, and how that impacts the forthcoming election and how the president is going to act. So very little of this has anything to do really now with the objective uh, facts on the ground. It's all about how we spin things to get what we want out of what's happening on the ground. Right. And I'd like to add to that picture, you know, this idea that the um, media is influencing the government uh, State Department and the president's administration, and they are, but the government also influences the media because the government is is where they get the sources, apart from the reporters who are on the ground in Vietnam. And then again, who are their sources while they're there? We'll find more, more about, about that later in this chapter. But the State Department is very clever at at feeding the media what they want the media to say. And the media is perfectly happy to soak it up because that gives them something to report. And so it's kind of a incestuous relationship between newspapers like the Wall Street, um, not Wall Street Journal so much on the government, but the Washington Post and the New York Times. They absolutely depend on government sources for their information. Yeah. Yeah. A source administration, Ted, you know. A source close to the, you know, the action said uh, it's all. Oh yeah. Unnamed sources, yeah. Or even if they're named sources. Well, yeah. Time, Thomas is giving us the signal, so maybe we should say ta-ta for now. Tough luck for now. No ta-ta. Oh ta-ta for now. All right, God bless you. Ta-ta. <laughs> God bless you too. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.